Welcome to this week's Insights podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. I'm Don Mills. Don, a very interesting conversation today with Bill Labbe, the President and CEO of uh, ARC Canada, uh, one of the two companies that d- developing an SMR, small modular reactor here in New Brunswick. Yeah, and it's uh, fairly timely. I just uh, completed a column on the on the on this topic, uh, and uh, and and one of the things that really confirmed to me is that SMRs are are potentially a real game changer uh, when it comes to meeting the twenty fifty uh, target of net zero. And um, you know, this adds to the depth of knowledge. And the other thing that I was I was surprised by is is the fact that to the credit of uh, uh, you know the, our country, uh, we started this process a number of years ago uh, with a roadmap uh, by NRCAN in 2016 that led to an action plan, and in 2019 that that includes the province of New Brunswick, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, and 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 we are according to Bill. Um, five to seven years ahead of every other country in the world in this technology, which is, that's big news, frankly. And and I think Canadians should be really proud of that fact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he explained just in Canada, the extent of the opportunity uh, we are expecting to go from 500 terawatts of electricity or demand today to 1500 terawatts by 2050 across the country. So basically we'll need to triple the amount of electricity production across the country and without nuclear, I think it's going to be extremely hard to meet that target. He said it would require, I think he said 67 additional Muskrat Falls projects to get there. So that's just, just showing you the real, uh, the real just serious scope of the opportunity. So it's going to take, as we've talked about on previous podcasts, it's going to take a multi-sectoral approach to get there. And I, I think people will walk away from this conversation thinking that nuclear is a big part of that solution. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that, that that we have to consider it, especially again with this uh, this technology. And by the way, this is Generation Four SMRs. They've been around for thirty or forty years. They're used already; have been used for a long time in things like nuclear submarines and nuclear aircraft carriers without without uh, without any issues. You know, so it's pretty proven at this point. But we're into a new generation, a new generation which is you know, has some special safety features that are even better than the can-do reactors, which have already an, a really excellent safety record. And by the way, uh, one of the big obstacles, though, overcome in Canada is, uh, you know, the concerns about safety that the vast majority of Canadians have when they talk about nuclear power. And, you know, we have to allay those fears, obviously, before people feel comfortable with nuclear power. And But I think the industry really needs to pivot and, and use this new technology in a way that starts to uh, alleviate the fears related to safety. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's going to be critical to get public support. But as you pointed out to me before, uh, um, you know, the, these small reactors have been used on uh, nuclear submarines and nuclear uh, aircraft carriers in the U.S. for decades without any kind of issue. So, and of course, people are living and working in very close proximity to these energy sources. So they're very, very safe. Um, and I think that uh, it, it's incumbent upon the industry to make that case. The other thing I found was very interesting about our discussion is the fact that 
you know, we're now not talking many, many years out into the future. He's talk, He said they're talking about doing supply chain work in 2024 and actually starting construction in 2026. Well, that's only about three years away. So the, these things are now starting to, you know, we can see the light now at the end of the tunnel in terms of the opportunity uh, for the nuclear energy in New Brunswick and across the country. Yeah, and I just want to make one other point that I think people need to bear in mind. Um, you know, there's an expectation that uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick will be out of the coal generating uh, business by 2030. It's going to be very hard to do without some other form of electricity. Uh, and, you know, nuclear will just be coming on stream uh, at the end of this decade. So there's going to be a, there's going to be a problem here, I think, in terms of uh, shutting down those coal fired plants. If we don't get the Atlantic Loop in place, which uh, I don't think can, can be done in this time frame either, to be clear, uh, you know we're, we've got a we've got a timing problem when closing those plants that people I think need to start to prepare for. Yep, I think that's right. I think there's a huge issue around getting these things done in a timely fashion. But in my from my opinion, Don, even if it slipped into the early 2030s, as long as you were on the right path. You know, and you were getting things done. I don't think it would be a huge issue for me. The issue is the bottleneck after this thing gets really rolling, and if it takes six years to get single projects approved, uh, you, you know, I think that's ultimately going to be where the real challenges are in terms of timelines. But once the supply chain is in place, once the workforce is in place, once they're able to do these things at scale, you know, build five, six, seven of these things at any given time. Uh, you know, I think they'll be able to, the industry will be able to meet the demand. It's whether or not the regulator will be able to approve the projects in a timely fashion. And this is a warning to the federal government to get its act together. It can't yep. wait until the product shows up and then start the approval process. They need to streamline their process, you know, to imagine that it takes six years to get, you know, that's, that, that's too long. That's not going to work for anybody. And, you know, especially once this technology is proven, there's got to be a streamlining of those processes. I hope the feds are working on this right now, because if they're not, they're going to be late and then everything else is going to be late. Yep, it will. There'll be a cascading effect and it will impact our ability to hit net zero by 2050. So without any further ado, here's our conversation with Bill Labbe, CEO of uh, ARC Canada. Welcome to the Insights Podcast, Bill. Yeah, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So before we get to start talking about your company in the nuclear energy sector, uh, we'd like to find out a little bit about yourself. What was your career path and how did you end up as president and CEO of ARC Canada? Yeah, certainly. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and we look forward to this uh, conversation today. I did start out um, as a mechanical engineer in the industry and uh, I've been in and around operating nuclear power plants for about 15 years as an operator. Following that, uh, I was 10 years uh, working on the, perhaps you would call it uh, maintenance and upgrades of uh, taking care of those uh, operating units. And then the 10 years after that, I spent on the, on the uh, electric grid, mostly in the US working around um, upgrades that needed to happen to the grid as a result of a change in enabling more solar and wind uh, to that grid and how that grid need to be accommodate those kinds of changes. Then I spent about a year in Puerto Rico. There were um, two uh, category five hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico, it essentially took the island out uh, to a blackout. I spent a year there putting uh, power back on the grid. And then uh, following that, I came to uh, New Brunswick Power 
and spent about a year with them working on a, um, a CapEx plan of all the things that uh, should be done at the unit over the next 10 years. And we laid that uh, plan out. Um, and that plan is what they're executing today. And then I was introduced to ARC in uh, the end of 2020, came on as the CEO. And then uh, after a period of about six months, became the CEO. And I've been here since. Uh, now, your company is one of a number of companies working on developing SMR technology. You've, you're currently developing uh, what is known as ARC-100. It's an advanced small modular re reactor. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this technology? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really exciting. As I said earlier, I've been in, um, in and around power plants for, for about uh, 40 years. Um, this advanced reactor is a very simple, uh, very simple power plant. It is technology that was developed in the U.S. by the Department of Energy and through their advanced reactor programs. And that was done at uh, the way they do it in the U.S. is at the national labs. So there are three labs involved, the Idaho National Lab, Argonne National Lab and Sandia National Lab. So three labs put the technology together and then over a period of about 30 years, um, did research and development, built a facility, connected it to the grid, and it operated with a capacity factor of about 80% with a 20 megawatts net to, to the grid. Um, and in that facility, they did a lot of research on the fuel. So uh, uranium-235 is what's used. And they um, contemplated, you know, what's the best enrichment? What's the duration? Could it be recycled? And in that um, and in those years, came up with um, the optimum, if you will, for what that should be. We used enriched uranium. Uh, we have a core life of 20 years. So the refueling interval is stretched out for the 20-year period. And uh, it really um, enables the facility to have a very high capacity factor. So nuclear plants in the industry are around 92 93%. Uh, we expect this to be 95% or more, given the fact that we have very little outages to uh, accommodate changes in fuel. But what is exciting for ARC is all of that research and development that was done in the U.S. over all of those years really completed the research and development phase, if you will. Think of it that way. And then ARC has been able to take that technology and commercialize it. So the R&D, the development of the technology is all done. And now we are commercializing it and we are ready for deployment. So we have a very high, uh, what we call here in the industry, a technical readiness level, a TRL, that's greater than seven. Um, and that means essentially that it's ready for deployment. And uh, what we've been working on is really getting ourselves in the execution mode. So taking that and getting that first unit built at LaPro by the end of the decade. So we are in our engineering phase right now. We're in the middle of that. We're working with the CNSC on a vendor design review. We're in, we're in phase two of that. And we're moving forward with, a, we are just starting our long leap procurement around uh, the uranium supply with uh, Cameco out of Saskatchewan. And then um, our, our heavy lift on the procurement will come in 2020, the end of 23 and start of 24 with construction starting in um, 2026. So we are really in a good position to rapidly deploy many units is the way that I think about it. 
I'd like to find out uh, what differentiates ARC from, you know, the kind of growing roster of competitors. Uh, you know, what are, what are your advantages uh, relative to the competition? Yeah, the two that um, I should highlight here is really the technical readiness. You know, since um, uh, the DOE finished all of their work uh, in the U.S., there really wasn't any more research and development that needed to be done. And so our technical readiness is very mature and that uh, eliminating the uh, research development that uh, continues on with some of the others is, is really positioned ARC to be a leader in the uh, advanced SMR community. Now, some folks may want to know, you know, why we aren't building more CANDU re reactors, which really have a pretty good track record in Canada and considered among the safest reactors in the world. Why not stick with that technology to expand the nuclear energy sector in Canada? Yeah, I, the CANDU technology um, really has been the workhorse for Canada, other countries for many years. It has a uh, great capacity factor with some reliability and um, demonstrated its uh, true capability. But I think the challenge goes to two things. One is uh, project execution risk. These are long duration projects and uh, you have a sense of time here that is of the essence. And the other piece I think is that uh, the changing grid. So as I mentioned earlier, the grid has more um, variable sources of generation on it. And that uh, causes you know, some compensation. So we always have to match load with generation or vice versa, generation and load. And the uh, uh, base load unit, um, a can-do unit uh, performs very well there. But if you have to make changes in the output, uh, that can be um, a little bit harder to do with a can-do six. And so the advanced SMRs, the, it's uh, a little bit different technology, but a little bit smaller. And that allows them to accommodate those changes on the grid. So if there's on an afternoon where there's good sunshine like today or there's a good wind like uh, yesterday, um, the unit can have uh, ramp rates. We can lower power or raise power at about a, a megawatt a minute on a, on a capacity for 100 megawatts. So it's very significant accommodation for those kinds of sources. So I think... Um, you know, the two, the two issues that really make SMRs, you know, part of that future is that uh, that strength in adjusting to changes on the grid. It's, it's perhaps not well known, but that's, you know, it's, that's what's happening uh, to the grid today. Yeah, can I just follow up on a question? I, you know, the Candy reactors have been very safe, but Canadians still, you know, tend to be against uh, nuclear because of safety concerns. What's different about SMRs in terms of their safety compared to uh, a CANDU reactor? Yeah, that's, um, so the advanced SMRs are a, uh, the ARC unit is a um, uh, sodium fast breeder reactor. Uh, so what does that really mean? <laughs> Those words, <laughs> the, um, Fast reactors really talking about the neutrons. So when a when an atom splits, fast neutrons are generated. A generation three water reactors really want to slow that neutron down, and that's how they maintain their uh, you know the reactor critical. Uh, so there's a you know water is used to moderate those neutrons, slow them down, uh, and then enable that next reaction. Fast neutron, uh, the type of reactor that we are. 
uh, we really have a, a chain reaction that goes from fast neutron to an atom to a fast neutron. So we are really capturing the front end of that uh, process. And the inherent safety uh, that's part of the ASMRs is, um, really has to do with some laws of physics. As, um, as, as heat is generated, um, we expand a little bit. So fast neutrons, we would say, have uh, you know, less targets, less target-rich environments. So in the event that um, you had a temperature increase, which is the first thing that you would see in a, in a safety uh, scenario, we expand, the neutrons have less targets, and then the reactor essentially shuts itself down, and then uh, we become subcritical. So that is the, uh, the wonderful thing about this design is that um, inherently, as temperature increases, we have less reactivity, uh, we end up being subcritical. It makes the design of the facility uh, that much simpler because we don't have to have redundancy of systems to ensure that we can remove that extra heat that I was just describing. So that uh, makes the unit much more available, easy to construct, and uh, commercially deploy. Bill, can you help us understand the scope of the opportunity for nuclear energy in general in Canada and around the world in the coming years? The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently suggested we may need to double or more the amount of nuclear energy production by 2050 uh, to meet our target of uh, keeping uh, global average temperatures to uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius. Do you have, we're going to come back to talk specifically about ARC, but do you have a general sense for the listeners of the role nuclear energy will play uh, to decarbonize uh, the Canadian economy and the world economy in the years ahead? It's, <laughs> it's a staggering uh, transition that we have to go through here in energy from, from today to get to net zero by 2050. It looks like a lot of the nations are lining up around that. Industry companies are lining up around that target of 2050. But uh, for context, um, the transition um, you know, it's, I believe it's obtainable. And the reason why I say that is a couple of things. Uh, globally today, there's about 440 operating nuclear power plants around the globe, 440. Most of those units, 440, were built from 1970 to 1990. That's a period of 20 years. So, we, so we've demonstrated that we can do this globally. Um, those 440 units have typically had a uh, operating life of about 40 years. Uh, some of that's being extended now for 60 years, D different regulations, different rules, but essentially everybody's moving to a 60 year life. Uh, that puts us um, in the 2030 to 2050 timeframe. So we have a fleet of nu nuclear units that are operating today, providing 10, 15% of uh, clean energy from a nuclear capacity perspective that um, has a shelf life, if you will. Now, Canada has done um, uh, the right thing at refurbishing their existing units to get that horizon pushed out there a little bit further, and it keeps us in the 2040 to 2060 timeframe. So originally 2030 to 50, that's moved probably 10 years, 2040, 2060. It's given us a little bit of cushion but we don't have a lot of years to get to 2050. It's 27 years and 28 days is kind of the way I think about it. 
we have a lot of work to do in this energy transition. Um, currently, 53 reactors are being built around the globe today. Um, so there's a good supply chain, there's a good industry, there's a good infrastructure, kind of the way that I think about it, that's in place. Uh, 15 of those units are in China. Now they have a big build out to do to take care of their greenhouse gas emissions, but they are moving forward in a very methodical, logical way to take care of their greenhouse gases. We'll see how that turns out, uh, given the scale of what they have to do. But in Canada, there was a study done by SNC Lavalin um, in the spring of 2021. It's a very good document. It uh, demonstrates the scale of which we have to go through. Um, so when you look at the use of energy, it's uh, 500 terawatt hours in 2020. So 500 terawatt hours is a, kind of the base footprint uh, for electricity in Canada. And they're projecting that 3x. We have to you know, increase that by 3x to get to 1,500 terawatt hours by 2050. Okay, so when you look at that change, that 3x change, um, it's a significant um, build-out of energy sources um, in those 27 years. So it would be... Um, an increase in hydro, if you look at Muskrat Falls, to make that number work, if we look at Muskrat Falls, we would need 67 of Muskrat Falls to increase the hydro capacity. If you look at nuclear, this is across Canada, so it's a broad footprint, but if you look at nuclear, we would need 64 Point La Prose to, in addition to the 67 Muskrat Falls units, um, if you look at the, if you did the calculation, it would be about 300 arc units for the nuclear component, um, including wind. It would be 50,000 two megawatt turbines and about 100,000 square acres of solar. So if you took all of that combination, you put it all together, we could make that target. So there's all of the sources are needed in order to get to uh, net zero by 2050. The scale of it is enormous. Uh, one of the things that was um, interesting for me um, in, the, in the course of the career of 40 years in, in nuclear, most of this time was making electricity. So um, what is new with the ASMRs is really their ability to be deployed in industry. So the scale of the problem is the transmission grid will get there. There's effort and, and interest in moving the grid, get it clean soon. Uh, and then we'll electrify some of transportation, we'll electrify some of heavy industry. But there's still industry that needs um, a high temperature, high heat source. And so that needs a new fuel supply. Coal to gas, gas to hydrogen is a transition that can get us there by 2050. But uh, the ASMRs can make that ammonia. They can turn that, convert that ammonia into hydrogen. And then where it's applicable, use that hydrogen as a fuel source like you do with uh, LNG. And that gets you the temperatures 2,000 degrees centigrade so that you can melt steel and uh, do those kinds of things. So 
you know, what, uh, what is the path forward to uh, get heavy industry and the rest of industry decarbonize really can leverage uh, the ASMRs to make that happen. So there's, there's a lot to be done, um, but uh, it has to be coordinated and it has to kind of look like um, a plan that everybody is, you know, pulling together in, in order to do it though. Yeah, I think that this is one of the issues that most people don't understand is that there you can't electrify everything, at least yeah. with the technologies we have now. So we have to have other fuel sources that are uh, uh, clean. And certainly hydrogen has come on, green hydrogen has come on, the, yeah. uh, come on the radar pretty quickly. I wanted to turn our attention a little bit to why New Brunswick. Of all the potential locations you could have done this, why did you decide to do it here? Yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting question, um, and, and it kind of goes back to a little bit of history. I start with Canada, though. Um, in 2016, 2017, NRCAN um, played a very pivotal le leadership role across Canada and put together an SMR roadmap, um, got input across the country, pan-Canadian approach, and then by 2019, put together an action plan. Um, and that action plan uh, continues today. So from um, when you look around globally, Canada was leading everybody else by five to seven years on this initiative. Um, France at the beginning of this year came out with their initiative on how to do it. UK in the last three to six months came out with their plan. Uh, the Far East, uh, Japan is, is reinvigorating theirs. Um, the Koreans are, are, are uh, doing similar. So Canada was in a good position years ago of establishing this action plan, this roadmap. Uh, so that was interesting for us. Uh, we saw that as, okay, if uh, this is going to happen, it's going to happen first in Canada. Uh, following along that, um, um, the nuclear industry in Canada, led by o, um, OPG and uh, MB Power, looked at okay, how do we um, how do we uh, make this work? How do we turn this into real real action? And um, OPG um, signed on. OPG and MB Power, Saskatchewan and Alberta signed on to this uh, four provincial MOU that. Uh, um, carried forward, how does it get deployed into Canada from their perspective? And when you look at the details of it, um, OPG was interested in new uh, generation three technology. So that lines up with their selection of the GE X300. That's a, that's a generation three uh, boiling water reactor technology. And then MB Power elected to lead the um, ASMR um, deployment. And so that's how they ended up with an, uh, a process to get uh, enabled of how do, um, you know, how do we um, select um, that advanced reactor? So MB Power had a, um, a selection process. They looked at essentially 80 technologies uh, back in that time. And then ranked, scored, down select, ranked, scored, down select and ended up with something that could uh, reprocess can-do fuel. So that would be uh, the Moltec solution, because there's a lot of can-do fuel that can be used again. And then a, uh, 
a, a uh, another SMR technology that can take um, um, what was done in the U.S. and get it deployed quickly. Uh, so kind of two different streams, if you will, uh, moving down this um, SMR path uh, and really kind of different timelines. OPG had a retirement of uh, some units that they needed a, you know, a gap in coverage. And so getting that X, uh, GE's X300 deployed by 2028 fit and worked for them quite well. Um, MB Power had a little bit more time, but still as aggressive in that uh, we can help them uh, decarbonize their grid with that with our first unit by 2030. That was the uh, kind of the uh, pan-Canadian approach and then the two utilities, but more specifically to New Brunswick, there's a couple things that I really like here I should share. MB Power recognized that the uh, ASMRs uh, was a good solution that fit many purposes. Um, there were good technical benefits, inherently safe uh, was important to them. Um, the social license that existed in the province was, was strong, continues to be, so it so expansion of nuclear in this province made sense. There's good academic support. So UNB, UNB has been um, very helpful and supportive of us with the CNER. And then we also use, we're just starting to use the community colleges um, in, our, in our next step. So good engagement with the academic resources. The other thing I liked was the uh, workforce. So New Brunswick has a strong reputation with its workforce. Um, here in St. John, there's a lot of heavy industry, refineries, paper mills. Those kind of skill sets are already here. You don't have to go look for them. It currently exists. Um, lastly is the uh, electric grid. So when you look at the grid, the provincial grid and its nodes where it interconnects with others, it's, it's a great grid, right? So it connects into the U.S. through Maine, connects into Quebec. And it connects into the other Atlantic provinces. So there's a couple things that this province can do is push power uh, in about five different directions. So it can move electricity into the New England ISO, um, into Quebec, and then um, assist the other provinces here with their carbon reduction strategies too, as we have about two gigawatts of, uh, of electricity that is fossil burning that needs to be retired. So that's, that's a lot of uh, power that has to go. And then lastly, uh, the ports. Um, this port, uh, uh, St. John and then Baldoon port, we knew bringing equipment in would be helpful. Um, and then facilities that, uh, as that get built and modulized, sent out uh, would work well from these ports. So good reputation in, in that part also. So that was kind of the long story, but when you look at all of the ingredients, pan-Canadian approach, the SMR roadmap, uh, the MOU with the other provinces, and then the approach that MB Power took really um, lined up well with ARC. Yeah, Bill, uh, my understanding is that uh, these SMRs can be as small as one megawatt to 300 megawatts. You, you've selected 100 megawatts as you, for your at least initial design. Can you tell us the reason that that is the uh, the power capacity that you're looking at? You know, and yeah. just for perspective for our people listening in, current uh, energy facility at uh, La Pro is about uh, I think it's net 660 megawatts, 
And uh, I, I, again, we're into the education business here. Uh, I understand, and you might correct me if I'm wrong, one megawatt can basically uh, power about 700 homes or so. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. 700 okay. is a good number. 700, 800 homes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, is there, uh, is there something about this uh, technology or the cost of developing this technology that makes uh, 100 megawatts the right initial choice? Um, there's, there's a couple pieces that, um, we looked at for ARC, uh, of why we ended up at a hundred and it comes down to, uh, if you go back to the base technology, so U S department of energy, um, uh, at the, um, Idaho national lab, uh, the facility there was a, um, it's, you know, us in the nuclear industry, we call it the experimental breeder reactor number two. Uh, that's the facility from which uh, our a lot of our design is based upon. That's the um, operating experience that we are using. It it was 20 megawatts electric connected to the grid, and then regulators, the CNSC, the NRC, um, other country regulators, when they look at what was deployed from a research and development connected to the grid, what was your demonstration? They like to see that scale up to be. 10x or less so if you took the 20 megawatts electric scaled up you would end up at 200 megawatts so that was kind of the upper end and we said okay perhaps somewhere in the middle uh, is a good place from a regulatory perspective uh, for us to fit and the the other consideration was small and modular so that um, there's um, the belief that uh, uh, through our fabrication facility that we can assemble small modules that uh, can be moved from a good work environment to a site and then, a, you know, kind of stick built, if you will, at the site. But having as much pre-assembled um, and then brought to the site had some restrictions about that. So you're, you're, you're balancing how much of that you can do in a controlled environment to how much you do um, locally at the site. And uh, when we looked at it, there's road consideration, rail consideration, and um, the size, the optimum size that we came to is right around that 100 megawatt size. So hmm. kind of fit that uh, model quite well, and it lined up with a regulatory perspective that uh, uh, is conducive to what the regulator would like to see. Uh, this is an off question. I've, I've, I've been curious about it for a while. What is the actual physical side size of these <laughs> reactors? Is it a is it a field you know a field house size or what, what size is it? Yeah, so we uh, we like to describe ourselves as smaller than a large box store. So there's a large box store um, at the. Um, at the mall up here that uh, is, uh, has a footprint. Uh, the parking lot uh, in the building itself would be twice the size of uh, what uh, the ARC unit would be. So it's a very small, tight footprint. We, we um, a single unit will be um, about uh, 10 to 12 acres. So it's not a very large facility. Okay, that, that's helpful. And you, you already mentioned that you anticipate the first reactor to be up and running in New Brunswick around 2030, I think I heard you say. But let's talk about the 
output opportunity. You already indicated that you're going to need up to 300 SMRs uh, as part of the answer to get to you know net zero in 2050. Uh, how many do you anticipate being able to build your yourself uh, over, let's say, in 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 the decade of the 2030s? How, how, where do That's you think? It's a very going? interesting question. We've we've thought about it a lot this year. You know, what are the challenges? Where where are the choke points in the process to get us there? We know we know the scale of the issue to 2050 is 300 units. Um, I think um, you know, the, the, the constraints are really around the sites where you're going to be, the site, and then um, getting site control is what we would call it, a project development, and then the, the permitting process that supports that. And so um, if you want to get 100 units done by 20, you know, 100 units or more by 2050 is the way I think about it. We have to um, shorten that that process. We can't go build one and then start over again and then start the next one. You know, we'll never get there. So we we really look at the footprint. Um, how many um, how many units does it make sense to uh, put at one location? We like to standardize that approach, and so our environmental permit applications would be a standard, um, and that standard would be applied to multiple sites and that we would do those multiple sites concurrently. Uh, so that way we can, we can initiate that regulatory review and that um, it takes a number of years to do that. Um, and then we think that will tie in well with our fabrication facility such that when the units that look pro and Baldoon are done, we are ready to you know, multiply uh, the number of units being deployed at that time. So. Dozens of units, yes, certainly in the 2030s. So just a follow-up related question to that, Bill, is I, one of the concerns I have is whether or not the nuclear energy sector can be developed fast enough to meet the government targets. The feds want to be off coal-fired electricity generation by 2030. Now they're talking about a net zero grid by 2035. You know, I, I guess, are you concerned that nuclear energy will be pushed aside by other initiatives such as the Atlantic Loop or offshore wind. Nova Scotia just put out a, 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 a strategy around two gigawatts of offshore wind. So do you think nuclear will get caught up in the regulatory process and, and not be able to you know, have the kind of um, impact that you, you would like to think? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And it really comes down to all, we need all sources. The uh, variability of, um, uh, of wind in, in solar and hydro has some risk. I, uh, I lived in California for a number of years. A lot of uh, the grid in California was supported by hydro. Um, you know, they had hydro that was uh, 80%, I think, of their generation. Um, and then they've been in drought for so many years, so long that they've had to stop using hydro to make electricity. Now it's just being used for people uh, and some crops. So the, it's it's a source of uh, uh, those variable sources can be challenging when you think you have them and then you don't anymore. But all of um, these energy projects do have similar sort of environmental permitting processes. So we're all in similar sort of constraints. 
Um, so I think what what needs to happen is that uh, a, a lot of this um, siting uh, needs to be done concurrently, and then we can all move through this uh, regulatory process perhaps uh, more efficiently so that uh, we can meet uh, these goals of uh, by 2050. But I, I, I did have uh, an opportunity um, a couple of weeks ago to speak uh, with the Anarchan uh, minister. Um, you know, we, we, we believe we've made good progress up, uh, you know, until 2022. Everybody feels good. We're moving forward quite well. But we talked about, um, you know, what is coming in 23. So um, GGH with the RX300 just submitted a license to construct um, about a month ago. They're, they'll be testing that process just in front of us. We'll be submitting our license application to prepare the site in June of 23. Um, others to follow. Saskatchewan has plans to uh, deploy units too. So we are all running into the same constraint. Um, it will be a challenge and where we need federal support um, is to staff it, um, get the resources they need and that uh, they, they can facilitate the conversation, discussions, make sure that they are quality applications, that they cover the intent of what has been asked, and then uh, move them forward. So there's, uh, there's a bit of uh, effort that needs to be done to uh, make that happen. So you're saying they, the, the government has to yeah. ramp up its capacity to actually review and do the, do the application processes? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I will say that the CNSC um, in the 2017 to 2019 kind of learned that lesson that there was a number of applicants coming forward in their vendor design review. They were very um, responsive. You know, they kind of reorganized themselves, put more resources in place. As we go through our vendor design phase two, um, it's been it's been really good that we've had we can see the change in that support and it's progressed well. So we'd like to talk now a little bit about the economic potential of the sector, uh, specifically in New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada. Don Mills and I are all about the jobs and the high value economic uh, development opportunity that comes with this sector. Uh, you do have a pretty a significant office in St. John now. Can you start by giving us an overview of your current economic footprint in New Brunswick, your size of your budget, number of employees, that type of thing? Yes. Um, so. Kind of the way that I uh, think about this is um, ARC currently, we work out of, uh, out of our office in St. John. We have a staff of about um, 30 direct uh, with 10 uh, indirects. So essentially uh, 40 full-time people working on the project here as ARC employees. And then we have 150 uh, people working on the project in very offices around across Canada and U.S. So um, that is supported by um, Hatch out of Mississauga, uh, Kinetrix, uh, Worley here in St. John, Laurentis uh, United, and GEH out of the U.S. All of that added together is about another 150 people uh, working on the project. And then the other piece that um, is kind of a silent um, not not as visible, if you will, is we're doing a bit of a knowledge transfer from what was done in the U.S. labs, the ANL, INL, SNL, U.S. national labs, and we're transferring that knowledge to the Canadian 
nuclear lab at Chalk River. Uh, so a good working relationship with all of us there uh, making that happen. And we, we look over the course of the next eight years that that knowledge will be transferred to CNL and they become our national lab support for the, for the program. Uh, but that's the, the size of uh, the, the effort right now. We have vision getting to about 50 more ARC employees over the next uh, 18 months. And then um, the, the resources of the companies that I just talked to have more uh, capacity to expand. Perhaps you um, saw the news um, a week or two ago, Connectrix opened an office here. They look to expand that office to 40 people. Laurentis opened an office here in St. John to support us in MB Power. So there are more resources um, indirect coming in to, uh, to support the growth. In, in the time period from 2023 to 2025, there'll be more engineers uh, supporting the effort. And then we're going to the engineering will be done and we'll pivot to uh, uh, buying our equipment and then getting into the fabrication facility in 2026. So, you know, our, our resources are going to change as we, as we get into a couple of years from now. But um, we've been very fortunate with, um, we had a very small staff um, and then we engaged um, uh, the University of New Brunswick um, we picked up some new grads uh, and then some people that were local. And then in our postings, you know, we covered Canada. So we had some people from new, uh, Nova Scotia come back, uh, from other provinces come back who are originally from New Brunswick that had to move away. And now they are back here with us. And I, I got to tell you, that has worked out really well. They're excited to be home, home if you will. And, um, you know, we're... Uh, proud of the team that we put together. One of the things that uh, NB Power, uh, we had a podcast with our chief nuclear uh, uh, scientist, uh, Brett Plummer, not that long ago. He said one of the goals is really to create a hub of for the supply chain and and the building and uh, and you know uh, deployment of these. SMRs. I think that on their website, they they hope by the end of a 15-year period that there'll be at least uh, 750 people working in this sector, generating about a billion dollars of GDP uh, GDP contribution and contributing over $100 million to government crop. uh, uh, um, Yeah, no, we... um, So so you're you're a part of that, obviously. Yeah. I'd like to ask what your own investment from your company is. Uh, You've already talked about the job creation that you anticipate adding, but how much money does ARC have in this this venture? Can you give us an idea? Tens of millions uh, in this effort. Now, that's just the start from where Mm -hmm. we are today. But um, um, the the net investment that ARC will bring to this uh, over the course of uh, the next uh see uh six years will be in the hundreds of millions so that'll it'll go to about 500 million uh Uh of uh, direct investment into this project um and then that's that's just growth of the uh arc in our engineering in our capability here 
getting um, through the license applications and getting uh, the infrastructure in place. And then that, that kind of, that transitions into what we would call project finance. And then that, when then we're into project finance and then that moves the construction forward. So it's, it's really two pieces, but the, the rate of that investment into the province will continue uh, for many years beyond that. Uh, actually, we expect it to be self-sustaining by the time we get to 2030 in the, in the range of hundreds of millions of dollars per year of investment into the province. And that, that, would, turn, that would turn into direct employment of numbers that uh, Mr. Plummer talked about and then indirect employment, we think that's around uh, uh, five, 6,000. Uh, in this, in our study that was done, um, actually, we 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 followed his study up with our own study that um, Pierre Marcel Desjardins did um, this year, and so that followed along that study, and that was based on a conservatively uh, 50 units. You know, we've we've talked about more, but conservatively about uh, 50 units, giving you that kind of uh, from an arc perspective, 500 million a year in uh, New Brunswick GDP once we get past 2030. It's a significant uh, opportunity um, as we go through the province. Mm. Yeah, sure is. So just a quick follow-up on that. Do you have a sense of how much of the component activity or the manufacturing, this, the parts and the supplies and the services that would go into constructing one of these um, do you have a sense of how much of that could go to New Brunswick based suppliers and by the Brunswick-based suppliers, I also mean companies that could be attracted here. You talked right. earlier about a couple of engineering firms that have already set up offices. So part of it would be New Brunswick firms, but part of it would be attracting firms from, I don't know, South Korea or whatever yeah. to actually yeah. set up facilities here. Do you have a sense of how much of that work could actually be done in New Brunswick? Yeah, David, it's a good, very good question. The um, do we There's been a lot of uh, interest in that topic for the last couple of years. Um, uh, prov the province is very supportive of it. Um, in the last 12 months, they've hired a nuclear secretariat, uh, expanded that role to really develop that supply chain is um, a key uh, goal of theirs. And we, when we look at our facility, uh, given what I described earlier about the safety and uh, the inherent safety and the way that uh, passive safety systems are very, you know, very simple, they're not complicated. Most of the facility in the range of 70 to 80% of it is what would be equipment that's commercially available. So when I look around uh, just the city of St. John and what's already existing um, in this area, um, those kinds of components uh, already exist or nearly already exist. You know, so there's components that uh, are similar with some modification uh, could be um, adjusted and, and fit our, our, our our design. So um, 80, 70-80% commercially available of that number, um, of the total number, we believe somewhere between 40 and 60% all could be uh, done right here in the province. So what, uh, what we've done is um, worked with OMB and the Nuclear Secretariat. We've reached out to all of the um, companies here in St. John and then across the broader province and, and working on a questionnaire that um, 
you kind of give us some feedback of what they're capable of, what they're interested in, what else do they need to facilitate their growth in order to do what uh, our interests are. So that started. Uh, we expect the results of that back by uh, the end of uh, December, and that will allow us to plan for what we what we need to adjust in 2023, so that when we place our first orders in 24, um, the supply chain here is ready for it. So good progress is being made there. Um, the the other thing that we're we're kind of doing at the same time is we have our um, we call it a bill of materials list for the facility, but it's, it's really your equipment that you need. Um, we looked at our electrical components, put all that together, and we send out an RFQ to all the companies in the province and um, ask them, you know, can you make this, uh, can you supply, supply us a quote, uh, can you give us a drawing of what you have? And we will... Uh, think of it this way, we'll take what's commercially available here and we may make some adjustments to our design early so that, oh, okay, now we know that we can make a fit. So I would say there's a lot of activity in this space to really make it uh, successful. We have a few other questions that we'd like to ask, but we're getting tight on time. I wonder if you could give us uh, a brief response to some of these questions. Uh, you recently announced the opportunity uh, with the port of Bell Dune. Uh, I wonder uh, what what is that uh, proposal all about, and how does ARC fit into that proposal? That's an interesting opportunity. I uh, I went up to that port um, about two years ago uh, toward the facility. Um, it's a great opportunity for the port of Bell Dune. Um, deep water access. Uh, I think it's thirty foot uh, three piers. Um, plenty of land, and it's got a lot of infrastructure that currently exists there uh, with the pier, uh, water infrastructure, um, electrical infrastructure, and then it has a lot of land available. Um, and so the port, um, uh, working with Denny Caron, he'll he'll give his um, his thoughts here soon too. But um, the port has a unique opportunity. Uh, there aren't any other ports in North America that have those kinds of uh, uh, infrastructure that exists where they can expand. <laughs> Here in, in St. John, it's all tight and there's not, not much room to move. So their biggest asset was space. Um, so they've got a lot of uh, space footprint. Um, that's good uh, for us to put a facility there that can make a, a clean fuel source, as we were describing earlier. Um, the way uh, this is arranged is um, they'd like to make so many tons of ammonia uh, per day, and it adds up to about a million tons of ammonia a year, that, um, that will enable industry to really grow there. Um, and so making that uh, amount of ammonia, we want to do that in a clean way. So we will connect ammonia facility to a uh, these ARC 100 units, and that will give them the energy that's needed to make the ammonia and then eventually make uh, turn that ammonia, some of it, into hydrogen. Some of the ammonia may be used uh, right there at the site. Some of that ammonia may be shipped. Uh, so he has the desire of you know so many ships a year that would just carry ammonia to Europe. He's spending some time and effort to uh, make those arrangements in place so that as this comes along, um, that infrastructure exists. So it's a great opportunity. 
um, as we were talking about before, ARC unit can make electricity or it can make um, uh, process heat. And in, in, in combination with electricity, process heat, we can make ammonia very efficiently. So I just have a couple of quick questions about the cost of the power that you're going to be producing. Um, most estimates I've seen suggest that SMR cost per kilowatt hour per megawatt hour is going to be competitive with other sources when you look at the total cost, including load balancing and other things. But can you give us a sense of where the price for this power is going to come in relative to other sources of, of green and clean energy? Yeah, David, I think you described it well. It's um, it's really at the um, it's 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 comparable or less than the um, uh, renewable or variable sources of uh, generation. Um, so, I think um, one of the things that we look for as we build out this industry and get multiple units um, in production that um, is very similar to how solar. Um, uh, improved its cost profile, wind improved its cost profile. After so many of those units get built, um, efficiencies are uh, obtained, deployment uh, efficiencies uh, optimized too. So we think after probably five to seven units, we would be in a very, very competitive space to uh, even beat those sources of, uh, of, uh, of generation. So just a quick follow up on that. So you're saying about five to seven units to get to some sort of, yeah. you'll know, pardon the pun, but critical mass where yeah. you actually have a cost per, uh, to produce these things is competitive. Correct. I just wanted to ask you about, the, are you looking for some sort of government support or rate payer support? You talked about wind and solar. They, they both came on the grid at very, very high rates. Initially, governments were prepared to pay a significant premium. Yeah. Under the expectation that as things got to scale, those costs per kilowatt hour would go down. Are you expecting the same thing here or or will SMR power be, be more competitive kind of right out of the gate? Yeah, more competitive right out of the gate. We're not looking for that uh, subsidy. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we'll come out of the gate, we'll meet or beat those and then we'll improve over time. Yeah, well, that is, uh, yeah, that doesn't happen too often. Uh, so good for you. Uh, there's obviously continuing opposition. I think the last public opinion research I saw that, you know, close to 80% of uh, Canadians expressed some concern about the safety of uh, nuclear power. Uh, in my own province, uh, there's a ban on, on on the construction of nuclear plants that has been in place uh, since the privatization of Nova Scotia Power. What do you say to those folks who are nervous about expanding the use of nuclear energy? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think um, you know we we I would you know enjoy um, having those kind of conversations. It's um, I'm always interested in trying to understand what problem uh, is trying to be solved, and uh, you know we have. Um, you know, a lot, a, a lot to do to get to net zero by 2050 and, and stop uh, using uh, fossil fuels uh, as an energy source. And I find that um, that is a, a critical problem that needs to be solved and that uh, this is one of the solutions that, that can take care of that um, as part of a bigger portfolio of solutions. But I think uh, 
part of it is um, information um, that needs to be shared. You know, I think there's a broader message um, that can um, help that dialogue. I don't uh, believe the, um, the nuclear industry has shared that message well. And I think that it's incumbent upon us to do that over the next few years is to spend that time in the community uh, talking about uh, their concerns. I think uh, they'll, they'll uh, appreciate uh, the safety record. If you look at safety record of in, in this sector uh, and then across multiple sectors, the, uh, the safety performance is outstanding. And uh, I think if you spend a little bit of time at one of these facilities, you would appreciate that. One of the other concerns you've already alluded to it is the time it takes to get projects approved by government. Uh, this is kind of the final question, but there's some talk about uh, how those approval processes can be streamlined to reduce the time it takes uh, uh, without impacting the quality uh, of the environmental and social impact analysis. What are your thoughts about the approval process? You know, what, what would be a, a reasonable time length yeah, start to finish to get to approval for projects. Yeah, it's a good question. I um, I've been um, in multiple countries doing different environmental permits. Um, they all have kind of different life of their own, and um, you know I think um, reasonable sort of time, maybe uh, three to five years. Uh, but um, what we don't want to do is get stuck in the regulatory process and not move forward. So if there's something that needs to be done, you know, we go off and do it and, and uh, come back and, and then move forward. So they, they have um, challenges of efficiency in that way where it can get stuck and then, um, and then it's hard to move forward. So I think we have to be careful with that and, and think of ways that, that that part of the process can be managed better, if you will, if it might be the right way to describe it. I think it's incumbent upon us um, and our suppliers and our partners and stakeholders that we deliver a quality product uh, to the regulators so that they are comfortable with what uh, they are receiving from us. So that's our responsibility. And then it's their responsibility to uh, take action on it and move it forward. So I think um, one of the ways that can be done is upfront and early dialogue uh, to make sure everybody has the same understanding. But we are moving into um, a new regulatory permitting process that really hasn't been tested. So C69 is really, um, it's, uh, it's new and we have a lot of uh, opportunity to try to get it right here. Well, Bill, thank you so much for taking this time uh, to enlighten us and our listeners on the opportunities associated with the nuclear energy sector, but specifically your company. Very, very, very exciting, and uh, you, you seem to have got yourself a very interesting job. Lots of work to be done, but certainly we've learned a lot today. I think, Don, uh, I think it's fair to say we've added another uh, uh, level of to our knowledge of this sector, so we do appreciate it. Very good. David, Don, thank you for your time. That was Thanks great, again. Bill. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.